It is Friday, the 18th of January. You are listening to the It's a Monkey podcast, episode number 11, 2013. First episode in 2013, and it is a super special episode. We have a fantastic interview coming up. Um, James, welcome to 2013. Yep, all brand new year to get excited about. Lucky 13. Yeah, sure is. Are you feeling fresh and energized? Uh, yeah, actually, I am quite quite more energized than uh, than last year. New Year's always bring uh, new perspectives. It's interesting psychologically to start off on a clean slate. There's definitely something to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, very invigorating. So coming up on this week's episode, we will be playing an interview with Phil Libin. Now, Phil Libin is the CEO and founder of Evernote. Evernote is a product that you have probably heard of. Um, you probably even use it, and it is a good chance that you love it. Phil not only has created a terrific company that has built a terrific product, he is a fantastically smart and interesting and original guy. So hang around. We are going to bring that interview to you very shortly. We're going to keep the news section shorter than usual this week because we want to get straight to that interview. Um, And of course, James, the big story this week is Facebook's search application Mm -hmm. search functionality yep their their graph search system which has just just been released um i think it's pretty big um you know i've been looking through it a little bit and to me it probably you know i'd almost say it's probably one of the the biggest technological you know um advances i think we've probably seen in the past year actually um you know to me what what do you think of it well, let's just take a step back. I mean, essentially, the way that I understand it, it's a it's a search layer around your um, your Facebook account or the data in your Facebook account. Yeah, I mean, with the using natural language search and and things like that to build so smarts behind it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not um, it's not something I think that has very much. Uh, there's no sort of metaphor or anything you can really tie it to that that exists. It's definitely. You know, if you could ask a question to all of your friends all at once and collate all their results uh, very quickly and pull the, the top answers to the top, um, I mean, that's that's kind of what it aims to do. It tries to pull that information that your friends have posted on Facebook and, and collate that all into one, one, one big result um, in, in the ways that make sense in the context of Facebook. So things like photos in certain areas, what dentists or what business or, you know, what restaurants you might like in a certain location, um, you know, which your friends work at which company and which your friends in certain companies like skiing, those kind of examples. Um, and so I think it's the kind of, I mean, it's those, those kind of queries are kind of things that you can definitely see people, you know, wanting to know, but it's really hard to get that information currently. Um, and I really do think this is kind of opening, you know, some interesting new doors. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when it, when it goes public and when people actually start using it in real world situations. The, the quality of Facebook data though, I mean, is it, is it that good? I mean, you know, is the, having this fantastic search layer, but if you're searching for a terrific dentist in Sydney, I mean, do you and your friends, have you actually populated high-quality data? Because there's a lot of distortions. For instance, um, Coca-Cola, American Express, some of the really big brands have massive amount of likes, but those likes have come from competitions and sweepstakes and things like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is an interesting question. I mean, I, I do wonder, you know, because Facebook are obviously developing this and the they're obviously using it themselves and understanding how it works and just 
just inevitably Facebook uh, use within Facebook is obviously going to be really high. They're going to be liking liking uh, a lot of things, and it's going to actually have probably a lot of high quality data. Um, and when that moves into the real world, um, I mean, I do I do wonder, you know, just from my own social graph. You know, I know a lot of my friends don't necessarily use Facebook for sort of just liking random things. You know, if they go to the dentist, they're not going to like it just because they, they like the dentist. So, um, you know, my own social group currently, I don't think that 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 activity happens. But when when something like this becomes released, and if people do actually start using it actively, you know, it could actually motivate people to to actually use Facebook more for that type of stuff. I mean, currently, you know, if you like something on Facebook, it's very uh, you know, it's really vanity. It's just yeah. a vanity thing. It's, there's it's no, a bit of an arbitrary type yeah, of. There's, there's no value. You're not. You're not providing anything. You're not getting anything out of it. Where, whereas now that this this graph search thing exists, you know, there's actual real value. If you if you find a really good business, a really good restaurant, and you and you like it, you know, it that means any of your friends, anybody who's got a close connection to you, if they're searching for something related to that, that they're going to find that product and. Something to me, it would actually make using a lot of Facebook's features much more. It would give me a much more incentive to, and I really would see that as being a motivating factor. So, and um, hence um, the stickiness of Facebook will yet increase yeah, even mean, further. I, Just when you thought Facebook couldn't <laughs> get any stickier, that, I mean, it's it's both ends to me. It's both both the information they're revealing and the kind of uh, the way it may change the way people use Facebook that I think are, are most interesting. So. Um, you, you know, it's obviously very early. It's not released, so you know these things could, you know, fall on their face, face and not get any adoption. But um, you know, just on on the face of it, it does look like you know quite a a new technology and something we haven't really seen before. So I find it exciting. Look, they admittedly say it's beta or beta, and it's very early days, and they're going to iterate and they're rolling it out slowly. But I, I agree with you. I think they they in an echo chamber where people obviously use Facebook a lot and, and a lot of life casting, so to speak, happens on Facebook and they're dealing with a lot of high-quality data. But the same with my friends on Facebook. They don't check in necessarily a lot. They don't. Their Facebook profile is not a particularly good um, analog of their real life necessarily. It's a, it's, it's a much looser type of relationship with their life. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the challenge. It's going to be... it. Th- you know, it's going to be if if that data isn't at a high enough quality in order to get people to use it from the get go, then it's not going to have those other you know if not enough people are using it, it's not going to encourage people to actually fill in that information. So you know that could be you know it could be dead before it starts. But yeah, just have to wait and see. And interesting, one of the lead developers on that is the ex Google Maps, ex Google Wave, um, Danish born Australian um, citizen, Lars, Lars yeah. Rasmussen. I yeah, think. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I was quite surprised. I saw him in the video. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's where he ended up. So, yeah. I, I remember when he was, he moved out of Sydney and uh, to, to the valley, and he said he's really going to miss living on Sydney Harbour and he's going to miss the lifestyle in Sydney. And But it was an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, can, I can see why did it now it uh, it makes a lot of sense and with that kind of um uh intelligence and foresight behind it as well it gives me a lot of um a lot of faith in the in the project um speaking of google wave though why have facebook and i think we've mentioned it on the podcast before um boosting the why don't they come up with a gmail killer james <laughs> that's a good question I, I everyone you. if you're listening to this podcast you might not know it but you have an email address that you can that you can anyone can email you outside of Facebook. So if your email address, your Facebook is facebook.com forward slash joe dot 
blogs. Your email address is joe.blogs at facebook.com. So you essentially, you have an email address. Um, you have a unified messaging system where chat and messages go into the same box. I think they could come up with a Gmail killer very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard to understand why they haven't. Um, I mean, maybe they believe that what they put out so far was was their best attempt. Um, you know, I don't think it is. Uh, you know, I can I, I can think of lots of ways to improve it, and I'm surprised they haven't focused more on it. As you say, I think it's a it's a lost lost opportunity. Well, maybe uh, you know, it's interesting that even a company with uh, um, the massive resources, watching some of the videos around this search. They, um, you know, talk about their resource challenges and focus challenges. So it's it's even a company that's that's growing and has got no funding issues. It is very difficult to seriously tackle deep projects on multiple fronts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's. It, I guess it's very easy to sit from the outside and say, why aren't they doing this? But yeah, I guess they're putting their eggs in certain baskets for now and um, seeing how it plays out. You're listening to James, Peter, and Kevin Garber. We are the co-founders of a company called 89N. Um, we have a few products. One of them is Manage Flitter, which hopefully you have tried out. Um, Manage Flitter has had over 1.3 million users. So give it a go. We love feedback. We love feedback on this podcast. Please tweet us back at monkeypodcast. Um, on Twitter, we also have a Facebook account. You can also email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. You can also leave a comment. If, you, if, you go to, um, if you're listening on, on the web, leave a comment about uh, any of the stories. We love your feedback. We know you're out there. We know you're listening, so tell us who you are. Coming up shortly after the break, we'll be chatting to the CEO and founder of Evernote, Phil Libin. A fantastic interview. Um, you will not be disappointed Stay with us, and after the break, the CEO and co-founder and founder of Evernote, Phil Libin. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code monkey two. At Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. Beautiful day here in Sydney, Australia. I have a very special guest live on the line. He has been called the most underrated Silicon Valley star. He has uh, managed to build a company. <laughs> I can hear him laughing in the background. Um, He's managed to build a company that's raised uh, over $250 million. The company is four years old. It's, it has more than 45 million users, over 200 employees. Its valuation is between $1 and $2 billion. Uh, he's, he has fascinating things to say, fascinating insights into the startup industry, into uh, entrepreneurship. I um, am lucky enough to have him at the, the end of the line in, in Silicon Valley. Um, Phil Libin from Evernote, thanks very much for joining us on the It's a Monkey podcast. Hey, thank you. It's a real pleasure to uh, to be here. Phil, have you ever been to Australia? No, it's one of the great injustices in my life. Uh, one of the things that I'm most ashamed of is that I've never been to Australia, and there's really no there's really no good reason. I really I need to come, and I need to I need to do it relatively quickly. It's only one flight away from the Bay Area. 
It is, and it's a short flight. It's only like 20 hours or something, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, actually, it's easy to do. It's no, actually, it's crazy. With all there. the traveling I do, I've been, I've been just about everywhere, and uh, that I haven't been to Australia is just, uh, it's, it's unsettling to me. So I need to make it down there very soon. Well, I saw your comments about the European startup industry, that it's got a couple of the elements being smart, creative people, hardworking people, but the early stage ecosystem is still just, you know, not quite there. And I think Australia is in a very similar position to that. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, what we'll do is um, uh, we'll probably go over there and have, you know, start doing some hackathons and doing some outreach to local developers, local designers. We really just want the, we want the most creative and energetic people to do stuff with Evernote. Uh, so we'll, we'll come to Australia and, and, and do that. Look forward to in it. In fact, I think I think I think you know I should just I should just make news on this podcast and just go out and say that I'm, I'm I will commit to being in Australia at some point in, in 2013. I think it's going to be a, a New Year's resolution that I make. I'm not going to let another year go by well, without going to Australia. So we, you can check in with me in a year and see if I'm see if I've lied about this. But we'll definitely definitely hold you to that. But please try and come in summer because in summer it's uh, it's it sounds like it's a mixture between the Bay Area and Hawaii. Not that I've been to Hawaii. Um, yeah, that that sounds good. That, that, that sounds like a plan. So summer is, is now, right over there. Summer is now. Okay. It yeah. goes from about December till about February, March. It's probably the best time of year to uh, head to at least Sydney um, is, is the best time for Sydney. Neat. Uh, well, I'll, I'll make it out sometime in 2013, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Terrific. Phil, you've called Evernote um, the global human memory extension or the cognitive prosthesis. What I like about that description is that you're not talking about tech, you're not talking about features, you're not talking about, about bells and whistles. You're actually focusing on the value and the impact it actually has on people's lives. And I feel that sometimes gets lost um, in particularly the echo chamber of the tech industry. Yeah, I, you know, I never really saw us as a technology company. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a computer programmer. Many of the people, many of the early people that ever know, uh, you know, were, but we never really saw this as, as making something that's, uh, that differentiated itself based on technology. We really just wanted to make a product that we could, that we could use for the rest of our lives. So we, we want Evernote to be a, you know, a lifetime product. And you guys have the claim to fame of being the oldest app, um, and the Apple um, Store, as well as for the iPad, the, f the first, um, the first apps, sort of. Yeah, uh, well, we're definitely in, in. You know, we're in the first cohort. We're there on day one, so there's only 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 a few apps that were there on day one that are you know that are still around. And uh, uh, yeah, we we well, there was a strategy early on. We basically said um, uh, we're going to kill ourselves to get on all of the major new platforms on the day that they're released, so that we can piggy bank on uh, all of the massive. Uh, marketing money that the, the, the vendors and manufacturers, the platform companies are going to spend promoting all their new stuff. You know, we didn't have any money back then. We didn't really have a, we didn't have any advertising or marketing budget. So we thought, all right, let's just, uh, let's, let's kill ourselves to get on there on day one. And hopefully that'll mean a whole lot of uh, publicity and promotion. And so uh, it worked really well. So I'm glad we did that. So you guys are really famous for having presence on nearly every single platform how do you how do you organize the development teams internally as a matter of interest are they split by platform is there an R and d team that sort of wraps around all the teams well organize is probably too generous a word for it <laughs> um, i think um uh, we have uh we, we definitely have a a, a a a barely managed creative chaos 
uh, here, uh, and it is it is multiple teams. Uh, so we have a few principles that we you know that we try to adhere to, but the most important one is really that we don't like we know that we don't know how to do any of this perfectly. So everything is an experimentation. We're not dogmatic about stuff. We don't have a particular methodology that we say is the right way to do things. You know, we we, we try to be as uh, as flexible as possible in our approach and and uh, measure the success of things and, and adapt. So there's a few things that you know seem to be working out pretty well, um, and that's uh, having small teams. So we we kind of think that the you know the ideal number of people working on a product team is the same as the ideal number of people you want to have over at your house for dinner. Right. Um, you know, it's like six people, maybe six to eight people. Like if you have, you know, if you have eight people sitting around the dinner table, you can still have one conversation. But you know, as soon as you have more, like once you have ten people sitting around the t- dinner table, it's not really one conversation anymore. It's just too many people. So like somebody's off on the side having a little side conversation, that kind of stuff. And you know, product development really is it's like an it's like a six month dinner party, right? It's an extended, spirited, energetic conversation among a small group of people who are working together on something. So it's uh, we have maybe 19, 20 teams. Uh, each one is, you know, five to maybe eight people. Um, and uh, they build all the, all the products uh, and they compete with each other, um, you know, for, for good ideas or bragging rights. Um, you know, they kind of leapfrog each other in terms of functionality. Uh, the other thing that we figured out works pretty well for us is we never strive for um, consistency. We kind of think that consistency is not a goal. Um, you know, the goal should be excellence. Because I think if you if you if you strive for consistency, what you wind up getting is um, you, know, you wind up getting everything being consistently mediocre. Like everything kind of becomes consistent because it's all sort of sucky. Um, especially if you're building cross-platform. You know, so we don't use any lowest common denominator technology. We don't care about code reuse. You know, if any of you, to the extent that some of your listeners are you know developers or or, or managers of developers, you know, code reuse is like this big holy grail. We just we couldn't care less about it. Like we don't try to optimize reuse of any kind. Uh, we really just try to strive for every single app being the best it could possibly be, and then uh, motivating the teams that way. And when the you know when the when the iPhone team comes up with something that's better than the Android team, then the Android team is motivated to you know to to, to leapfrog over that and come up with something even better in the next release. So, are the the majority of your two hundred or so employees are they develop, developers, engineers? Yeah. Um, well, I think we're up to about we're up to about two eighty. I think right. maybe closer to three hundred. And um, I think I think something like sixty or seventy percent are product. So they're you know they're developers, designers, QA, you know people making the product mm-hmm. uh, in some way. Really, like almost everyone does. There's relatively few people that that don't do anything. There's like, you know, there's me, there's a couple of other, the higher management. So like the, 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 the dead weight is, uh, isolated. You know, I'm grandfathered in and there's a few other people, but for the most part, everyone's actually building products. Do you still code at all? Do you cut code? I do a little bit. Um, uh, they don't really let me, they don't let me into the, into the, uh, source control system very much. Right. Um, so I, they don't let me write production code. But I do write that they let me play around with a you know with the reporting system and the stats because I think they figure you know what's the worst I can do. Uh, so I do wind up writing a bunch of the reports. I write I write a lot of you know SQL queries. I spend a lot of time with 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 uh, you know pivot tables and analytics. And uh, I I produced most of the uh, I produced most of the analytics that, that we that we put out over the past few years in the early days. And uh, now we do have teams of people that are actual professionals at, at analytics that, that are doing a lot of that stuff. But I, I still. I still, you know, write a bunch of SQL from time to time. If you consider that code, which you know I do, because it's the, 
it's the last thing that they'll let me actually program. So tell us about um, Evernote for Business. You, you guys have launched something earlier this month, and uh, I, I guess it's based very much on the fact that your, your stats are showing that 60%, six, over 60% of your users actually use Evernote at work, and most of those people are actually doing it on their own back, and they actually bought it themselves and bringing it into work. Yeah, we, did, we just did a survey a few weeks ago, and it was two-thirds, 66% uh, use Evernote at work for you know, both work stuff and personal stuff. Uh, and the vast majority of those, I think, 85% of them are, you know, are bringing it in themselves. So they're not. It's not. It's not something that's sanctioned by the company. It's something that they they bring in because they like it. And we just thought, well, that's you know, that's how everyone at Evernote uses it. Like we all have Evernote accounts, and we all use it. And it's not really officially mandated, but we just use it to run the whole company. And we just wanted to make that a better experience. So, like everything else, you know, we really just we're building for ourselves. And we said. Um, uh, you know, now that we're close to a 300-person company, we still want to use Evernote to run everything. How do we make it a great experience for us? Um, and so we, we, we set out to do that. We talked to a bunch of a bunch of users, a bunch of companies, and I think we, I think we came up with something that's a very good start for you know for Evernote business. So the main idea is, um, you know, it's Evernote. Uh, it's just Evernote that that plays well at work. It makes it uh, makes your experience of using technology at the office uh, as good as it is outside of the office. I first heard you talk. I think it was on Jason Calacanis's um, regular show, and I've 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 I've, I've, I've good old, good old Jason. He's he's done great things for the um, startup industry. I just just love his energy. Even yeah, when I listen absolutely. to his, his podcast, I just I just want to start another company after after listening to him. But what strikes me about some of the the most of the talks I've listened to you um, give, you sound you sound incredibly relaxed for someone who is running a business that's, you know, having high impact and raising money and staff and all, and all those things that's part of the entrepreneurial roller coaster. I mean, are you a relaxed person or do you just sound relaxed? I think maybe you're just mistaken exhaustion for, right. for, for relaxation. I think maybe you're just picking up on, you know, on, on, on extreme levels of sleep deprivation and, and maybe that's coming across as being mellow. Uh, but yeah, definitely, uh, it's definitely a very, very um, intense process being at Evernote. Uh, everyone works really hard. Uh, the, the stakes are incredibly high. Um, it, is, it turns out it's far more stressful to, uh, to be at this stage of the company that we, now that we've had a little bit of success. So this is actually far more stressful than, than when we were tiny and about to fail at any given day. Um, and so there's, there's quite a lot of pressure here, and I think uh, I probably respond to that you know, in the sort of my best Spock-like manner and try to de-emotionalize everything and, and, uh, and be relatively even-keeled just because there is, there is so much stuff going on. I kind of see, you know, I kind of see the job of the CEO is to be a, you know, a, a drama sponge, right? I need, to, I need to soak up all of the drama. I need to soak up all the risk. I need to try to shield the rest of the team from as much of that as possible to just let them, you know, let brilliant people focus on being productive and not, not stress out. So I just kind of try to soak all of that up and, uh, I wouldn't be doing very very good job of that if I was always running around, you know, with my hair on fire. So how do you? I mean, do you have any strategy for downtime? Just getting a little bit of insight into into yourself. I mean, how do you decompress and get the the yang to the ying, so to speak? Well, you know, I um, I made a kind of a big breakthrough myself when I realized that uh, I was just going to stop trying to ever not work. Um, you know, I'm, this is not necessar generally necessarily good advice for everyone else, but you know, I'm the type of person that uh, I would hate it. Like whenever I would go on vacation or, or whatever, people would always tell me, "Like, oh, you got to relax. You just got to turn off. You got to, you know, you got to decompress. You can't work so hard." And what I realize is, like, bullshit. No, I don't. Uh, it's actually more stressful for me to be trying to, 
you know, to, to, to be trying to please other people's, uh, live up to other people's expectations of, of, uh, of, of downtime. And, uh, I'm actually never more relaxed than when I'm being productive and when I'm getting something done. And it's like being away from work is deeply stressful to me because I just, you know, I just, I don't know what's going on when I'm not there. So, um, I think I suffered quite a bit. Uh, like, like I think probably a lot of people do where, you know, you're sort of forced to, to unplug. And then a couple of years ago, I just realized, you know, screw that. I don't, I don't have to do this. I don't, I don't have to ever be off. I can, if I want to go on vacation and still be on email six hours a day, no one's going to, no one's going to tell me not to. Uh, and that's actually helped quite a bit. Like now I just, like, I'm not, I'm not operating under any delusions that, that I need to have anything other than, you know, productive time at work. Um, so that's pretty much what I do. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always on, I'm always, I'm always doing something, but, but I love doing it. It's, it's, it's my life's work. Why would, why would I ever want time away from it? And you've spoken a lot about how your vision is to have a hundred year company, um, you, you know, and, and look at the long term and any technology company, um, you, you know, that really is not a short term play. But then you also talk about, you, you, know, you know, that in a few years you would like to list. How do you plan on consolidating those two tensions? Because the short term, I mean, the, the, the stock market is, is incredibly fickle and incredibly myopic. And yet you still want to have your 100-year company vision. Are they going to be sympathetic to that? I hope so. Um, that's, definitely, uh, that's definitely one of the, one of the big risks and unknowns. Um, you know, I do think that um, I want to be a public company at some point, um, and, and I really think about that more, almost in moral terms. Like I think it's morally correct for us to be a public company at some point because uh, you know we're, we're asking the whole world to trust us with their memories. We're we're, we're asking people to to build up this this, this fundamental level of, of trust uh, in Evernote. And so you want that accountability just wrapped around you as much as possible, as tight as possible. Yeah, and and, uh, and frankly, if, if if we ask everyone in the world to trust us with their memory, I want everyone in the world who feels like it to have the opportunity to be an owner of the company. So I, I think it's a I think it's morally correct to be a public company, um, and uh, and I want to do the right thing. Um, I just don't want to do it right now. I don't. I want to. I want to delay. I want to put off uh, the day of going public for you know a reasonable amount of time because uh, we're just having so much fun right now. Like this is the most fun time in the company, right? This is the time where you can really. You know, we can really innovate. We can really take risks. We can we can fail a few times. Um, and you can't really do that when you're small, right? Like you can't when you're just a tiny startup and and you can't afford to take risks. I mean, other than the one massive risk that you're taking by by being a startup, you can't really do anything else. Um, and then when you're a big public company, you get punished pretty severely for failure. Uh, so I think like the the Goldilocks moment for us is right now. It's uh, you know we've big enough to have resources to take some risks, to do some crazy things, to, to fail a few times and, you know, not get, not get crushed by it, by, by public markets. So I, I kind of want to, I'd like to do this for a few years, uh, really get, you know, be very innovative, be very, uh, uh, be very, very friendly towards, towards risk taking. And then uh, once we've, once we've figured out a few more things, you know, in three or four years, maybe go public at that point. What, what what type of crazy risks are you thinking of? Is it type of the companies that you'll acquire? Is it um, just you know pushing the envelope in terms of the product? Yeah, I mean you know everything we do. I mean on the one you know, uh, um, Evernote business, right? Like the the fact that we've said, hey, now we're going to do we're, we're going to sell business software, but we're going to do it with the same exact point of view as as as, as we've always done, as, as with the consumer software. So we're we are building business software, but we stand completely and 100% on the side of the end users. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we are, we are taking a public position about how companies ought to use it. You know, we have a point of view about uh, um, what the right way is to, to run a company. Uh, and that point of view is directly reflected by, by our software. And um, it's not going to be a good fit for companies that have a fundamentally different point of view about, you know, how much you should trust your employees or uh, how to motivate people. Uh, and I think if we were a large public company, you know, once we started selling something, I think there'd be this tremendous pressure to sell as much of it as possible, regardless of, you know, whether or not it comports to our to our general philosophy of how the world ought to be structured. Uh, and right now we don't. Right now we can we can still afford to make something, and we can try to make make it really great and say, hey, if if 50% of the companies in the world don't want to buy it because it's just not a good fit, then that's fine with us. We don't have any pressure to 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 accommodate that. Um, you know, this international stuff. You know, we opened up offices in several countries uh, this year. We're going to do more next year. Uh, that's that's always a big risk. Uh, that's always a big unknown. So I think, you know, we, we, we I don't think we do anything that's um, that's reckless. I think we, we very carefully consider everything. But we, we are willing to do things where we expect that, you know, roughly a quarter, roughly 25% of things that we do, we kind of expect to fail. And we expect to fail pretty spectacularly. Because if you know if we're not failing in accord with the things we're doing, then we're probably not we're probably not being ambitious enough. But when you're when, once you're a big public company, can you really afford to have you know big public flameouts? You know, in accord with the things you do, you probably can't. Um, so, Dick, Dick Costello, the current CEO of Twitter, um, made some mm-hmm. interesting comments about the tension between focus and taking risks. And as a CEO, just trying to get that balance right or taking these two approaches, whereas Amazon, in a way, just, you know, took risks. But other other companies have chosen to, to focus deep and hard on their specific product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, Dick and, 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 and Jeff are both uh, they're both genius, uh, you know, visionary uh, people. Uh, they've done they've done pretty amazing things. And obviously, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon has been willing to. You know, he's been willing to walk in the desert, right? As a as as a public company, he's willing to go and tell investors, "We're going to do this thing, and it's not going to bring us any money for years, and we're just going to do it." And he just barrels through it, and he does amazing things as a result that no one would have expected. Uh, things totally not, you know, not obviously in line with with the core strengths originally. You know, all of the all of the cloud services that they've kind of invented, like where did that come from? You know, what does that have to do with selling books? And yet they do it, and they do it, and they change the world. So that's uh, it's a really inspiring thing. And I think, uh, I think, uh, um, you know, Amazon's uh, performance, Apple's performance, a few of these companies really are the exceptions to what I'm talking about. They're the exceptions to, you know, when I say that big public companies are loath to take risks, there's obviously great ones that, that aren't afraid at all that take big risks all the time. But, you know, it's one thing to say that, uh, you know, Tim Cook and Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos can do it. It's very much another thing to say that I can well, well, I think uh, yeah, I, th- I think others would disagree. Uh, you, you seem to be doing uh, you know terrific things um, w- with your company. Your your API, um, you guys seem to. It's not many people, not as many people that I thought of are actually aware that you guys have a very um, you know open API and people are developing around it. Yeah, and we're, it's something that we're going to be uh, much more vocal about uh, in the next year. We have about twenty thousand third-party developers, so it's, it's a pretty good community. But since, you know, we're not fundamentally social, um, I think we just get, you know, I think in general, we, 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 we aren't a viral company, right? We don't, we don't do things uh, that, that, that spread virally. We don't, you know, we don't, there's not a lot of hype around what we do. So everything at Evernote is about uh, very steady measured growth, um, which, 
which gets the pretty big numbers, you know, 20,000 API developers, I think, is, is pretty good. Um, uh, and uh, But we are going to be making a big deal about it uh, this year. I think one of the unique things about our platform, well, really about our business model, I mean, this is this is the thing about the Evernote business model, which I think is really kind of magical, which is, um, you know, it's, it's no conflict, no tricks. Like we have a... We, we have a direct business model, which means that we only have to please one one party, which is our, our, our customers, our users. We don't, you know, we don't have to please advertisers. We don't have to please partners. We don't drive affiliate traffic. We're not, we don't do data mining. We're not a big data company. Um, we don't have to monetize data in any way. We don't have to monetize eyeballs. All we have to do is make a product that people like so much that they pay money for it when they don't have to. Um, and... Um, what that does is it really lets us focus because we have no conflict of interest. We just focus on making the best possible user experience of the Evernote service. And I think one way that that's reflected in the developer community is I think we have no conflict. We have no conflict of interest with our developers. You know, if somebody writes an app, uh, you know, an app that uses the Evernote API, that uses, you know, Evernote accounts, that, that takes people's eyeballs away from Evernote apps, that's fine with us. Like we have no conflict, we're not losing any money, which isn't true for for some of the you know some of the bigger uh, companies with, with with successful public APIs. You know they do have a as great as they are, they have a fundamental conflict of interest. You know Twitter, if if somebody makes a Twitter app that you know takes away a large number of people from Twitter's official apps, their ability to monetize is decreased. What do you think? Uh, um, what, what do you think about the whole? You know, Michael Arrington wrote a piece recently that you know Web point two. Uh, the the promise of web 2.0 and and open apis and mashups is is failing everything seems to be contracting inwards and the user is now losing out no what's fail, what's failing are is at, at, you know advertising supported business models mm. um, because you know the whole the big lie of advertising is that oh no no it's going to be so well directed and so good that it's going to be a positive experience people are going to seek it out and that's just not the case. That's why whenever you have advertising business models, even though there's plenty of companies that make a lot of money on it, it's fundamentally there's fundamentally a conflict of interest, and there's fundamentally a, you know there's a finite pie. It's like whoever has the eyeballs is going to be making the money. And so, uh, in that sense, there's a there's a conflict between the platforms, the developers, the advertisers, the users. Like they don't all want the same thing, um, and we don't have that. So when we actually look at our our revenue per user. Uh, which all comes from you know premium descriptions. We're a freemium model. Uh, our most profitable users are ones that use our third-party API apps. So, even though they're using apps that take their take their attention away from official Evernote apps, they're still using Evernote, and we make more money from them because they're they're more engaged, they're more active, they're more likely to get value out of the premium description. So I think we're I think we have this, you know, we have this model which is very simple, uh, and it lets us it lets us completely avoid conflicts of interest. What it you know the downside of it is that it's slower to grow because it doesn't. There's no tricks in it. There's no. There's no little you know viral or social hooks. Um, but the upside is there's also no conflict. Uh, so it's just a model that 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 I prefer. Phil, I really appreciate your time. I know you uh, pushed for time, and uh, you, you do uh, need to head soon. I'll just I'll just end on on one of your comments when someone asked you. Uh, what your um, main competition to Evernote is, and you said the main alternative to Evernote is leading a miserable, unproductive life and being sad <laughs> all the time. Well, that was that. You know, yes, that's that was me before I started using it. So I stand by that statement. 
<laughs> Phil, I really appreciate your time. I look forward to, uh, you know, showing you around Sydney sometime. And um, thanks for joining us on the podcast. And uh, it was really great to talk to you. Hey, thank you. I'm going to take you up on another offer. And uh, uh, when I decide when, when I'm going to be in Australia, I'm going to need people to, to, to take me to all the best uh, eating and drinking spots. So I'll, I'll, I'll look you up. It will be an absolute pleasure. Thanks and have a good day. Take care. Bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. James, there are so many awesome sound bites in that interview. Um, I don't know where to start, but um, evidently a super smart guy. Absolutely, yep, yep. We do have some news. He, he uh, promised to come to Australia, so... That's terrific. That's, uh, that's annou- an announcement. An announcement. He's uh, on the record. He's going to make it to Australia within the year. I can hold him to it. We're going to take him around to uh, all the pizza places and, uh, <laughs> you know, the bars. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's, you don't have to work too hard in Sydney to... Um, help people have a good time but i there are a few comments that he made that um were really interesting i found particularly his insight into their development process and their teams quite interesting i i laughed when he's he said that the uh, pr- uh, product development is like a six-month dinner party <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's an interesting interesting idea an extended conversation i think was, uh, was one of the words he used it's yeah it's quite a nice idea for it yeah i so like they, that so they got about 20 teams of five to eight people each and the teams compete with each other. And I really liked what he said as well about don't strive for consistency. Your goals should be excellence. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And you know, he gave that example of the uh, you know if the Android team does something better than the than the iOS team, then it's going to motivate the iOS team to to work harder. It's it's an interesting perspective. I mean, when you have people sort of siloed into those different teams, um, giving them you know, some motivation to work harder and, and, you know, and just do their sort of personal best as opposed to, um, you know, consistency across the product. It's, it's, it's an interesting approach. I don't think a lot of companies follow it, but I can see it working. And I mean, you know, they're one of the few companies that I know of that really do have um, presence on every platform. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, they strive to get on the platform at day of release, which is pretty incredible. <laughs> um, you know, pretty bold, pretty bold. Yeah, because we all know day of release, getting on new platforms is all sorts of issues they need to be ironed out. Yeah, very risky, but um, only says it's paid off for them. And 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 I mean, you can see it because every time a sort of a platform launches, you kind of see the Evernote icon up in the in the in the early promotion app, promoted app section. I've seen that quite a lot, and um, yeah, it obviously obviously helps them. Like he says, they're basically kind of piggybacking off these huge companies' budgets to kind of promote their own product through these launches. So I guess it works both ways. Um, but yeah, quite bold. What I find interesting about the Evernote users that, that I know that they've succeeded hugely in appealing to not necessarily super technical people. I know one of my friends that uses Evernote the most is um, she's in her early 20s. She's not a technical person. She's a you know, type of massage therapist that puts together different workshops, etc. And she lives on Evernote. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't actually personally know that many people who who use it uh, incredibly regularly, but um, yeah, I can see it definitely. Uh, I can see that use case. Yeah. 
I've been using it over the last couple of months, and mm. it's it's definitely interesting. The um, as a sort of life casting um, tool, you know, I read a lot. I take snapshots of quotes. I take, um, you know, uh, um, if I need to make a copy of an invoice or a receipt, and I tag things accordingly. Okay, um, cool. So it's yeah, and and the fact that it syncs across your your different devices. I'm not I'm not. It hasn't become part of my day to day use yet, um, but it's, there's definitely something there, particularly moving towards a paperless environment. There's some interesting case studies online about people that have really used Evernote as as Phil says, an extension of their brain, an extension of their life. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I. Uh I guess I should try it out more to get a better better feel for it. I, I've used it uh, here and there, but um, yeah, I'd like to make it more of my uh, daily daily activity. I also found it interesting that he said um, it's, uh, the business is far more stressful now that they've had some success than right in the early days. I guess that's that that's a bit of a a, a life truth. I guess when you have something <laughs> to lose, things are always harder, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. When things can things can go wrong and you can lose your position, then uh, then yeah, it makes sense that you you'd have to fight for it and struggle a little bit. I think there's a saying that goes. Um, the most dangerous person in the world is someone with nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting they refer to his, his current uh, position as kind of like a drama sponge. Yeah. You know, just trying to remove all of the, the problems within the company. So, And I relate to that. I mean, as a CEO, I feel that a very big part of my job is helping keep the runway clear for the team so they can actually do their job. Mm. So part of my job is just, just making sure there's no debris on the runway because as long as your team is executing well it's three quarters of the battle won unfortunately that means that that half of your time is not as you, you don't get to execute on on your core competencies but in a way that's that that is is part of the core competency if that makes sense um interesting his comments about a public company as well uh, you know that he said which i've never really heard um, a CEO talk about before that um, he says it's mori- morally correct for them to go public. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting approach. Um, what was the, the phrase he used? Asking, uh, they're asking the whole world to trust them with their memories and that's why they want to go public because then, uh, you know, if they're going to trust them with their memories then they should be able to be, you know, shareholders in the company. Yeah. And accountable and transparent yeah. and all those things. Yeah, which is very, very interesting, interesting approach. You know, often... Uh, I tend to think companies do it for, for purely financial reasons rather than moral reasons going public, but you can definitely see that uh, that motivation there. There is, even though there's been so many complicated problems with the markets in recent times, there is still a level of credibility about um, listed companies. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. At least it's a little bit more the devil you know than private companies where it really anything could be going on behind closed doors. Yeah, there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, regulations and, you know, things you have to, have to you know, prove and do and report on and uh, and makes you much more accountable. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that is a moral moral motivation. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm in two minds about, about that because I often feel that, uh, you know, the system's probably a little bit, a little bit broken. Some of those accounting, you know, some of the things you have to report on might be a bit onerous. Um, and, and you know that that 
diminishes the moral obligation of companies to actually go public. Like so maybe you can just do the same thing and, and remain private. But um, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a bold bold position by him. But not only that, in a listed company, you you sometimes get forced to make decisions that aren't necessarily moral but they're in the shareholders' interests. So there's that whole other uh, debate where as a private company, you, you you don't have to put profits necessarily first. Yeah, well, I mean, like he said, um, you know, if they go, do go public, it's going to make it much harder them, for them to do their, you know, their, their experimental projects and, you know, they can't have any sort of big public f- flame-outs, as he put it. Um, if they are public, um, you know, that do, that does, I guess limit the innovation a little bit but um then again when you look at companies like google you know that are endlessly trying things that fail and um you know and amazon amazon's probably an even better example mm, true yeah and i think investors are smart yeah are starting to learn you know the the dna of certain companies and, and what kind of things they do and what kind of things work for them and um and and yeah it'll work Probably work for them. Yeah, and he said his goal, their, goal, their Goldilocks moment is right now, being that they, they, they're well-funded, they got good traction, but they, in a sense, only have to answer to themselves at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, his discussion about the, the failure of advertising business models was interesting and something that I think we probably feel very aligned with as well. I mean, we, we're not huge um, lovers of the advertising business models. No, no. I mean, it was it was very interesting that he he pointed to that as being kind of the the failure of uh, of Twitter and these big sort of media media companies that they do rely on on, on advertising. Um, and yeah, it was fascinating. It's, it's it's fascinating the way that they've built their company entirely on that that premium subscription model, um, and 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 how they use that to kind of align their interests of the company with, with that of the users. There's no, there's no conflict, as he says. There's no yeah. conflict of interest where as soon as you've got advertisers... You know, I, re- I, you know, I relate to this very closely, not only in our world where you know, a lot of our users have actually said to us on Manage Flitter as well is why don't you, um, you know, offer an advertised, uh, advertising model, etc. But even further back in my career when I worked in a commercial talkback radio station, there were, th- there were a lot of vested interests. There were ad- advertisers... And listeners, and yeah. often their needs were, were were quite different. I think in the web world, the, the, one of the most powerful points that I heard someone express as well is that the fact that such terrifically innovative companies such as Facebook, Twitter, Google are reduced to selling advertising is sort of a real lost opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, that that, that is interesting. Yeah, because then that they're focusing on on the advertising and not on something better, something for their users. Exactly. So it's interesting to see that that, that Phil is um, critical in a sense and, and rising to the challenge of moving beyond and resisting temptation um, for that quick, um, that quick advertising hit. Um, that being said, it all comes down to dollars and cents. So, you know, who knows? Um, I think that's... That's it. What did you pick up? Anything else uh, interesting from from that talk? 
No, I mean, it was just still that is his ongoing vibe was just all about it being a lifetime company and you can kind of see that coming out in just every single thing that he says. He finds it stressful when he has to stop working. <laughs> that was a good one, yeah. <laughs> and he just gave yeah. up gave up trying to stop working. So. Because it was causing more stress. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you part relate to that. I part relate to that. I mean, I really do love my going into the Australian bush and being away for a week. But yeah. I definitely do love being plugged in and working. I, I used to be like that. I never, I used to, I never used to find a need to unplug. And when I was on holiday, I would always just be constantly checking email. Um, but um, unfortunately, my fiance has kind of banned that activity. So I'm, uh, and I do kind of like it. Now I'm, now I'm forced to actually uh, give up on it. Um, but I think it would be quite hard if I was trying to motivate myself to do it as opposed to having somebody else, you know, motivating me, <laughs> for yeah. motivating it for me. But. And that's why for me going, you know, going camping in areas where there's no mobile signal and I don't have a computer with me, again, forces that type of environment. And I find it's useful in that it actually, it gives part of my brain downtime so that when I come back, I actually do work better. So in a way, it's, and this is a reverse psychology workaholic type, you know, analysis, but in a way I'm working on my business when I'm unplugged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives you new perspectives when you come back because you're not sort of stuck in the same rut as you were before. Exactly. And that's our challenge to stay, to stay fresh, to stay innovative, to stay high energy. Um, that's it for episode number 11. It's a monkey podcast. Please tweet us. Please email us. It's Friday the 18th of January, Sydney, Australia. I hope you enjoyed the interview with uh, uh, Phil Libin. We uh, are going to aim to continue to bring you fantastic interviews. We're going to really work hard to keep at the schedule every two weeks or as we say in Australia, every fortnight. Um, we're going to cover everything relating to the, the tech economy. Um, so thanks for joining us, and we will see you in two weeks' time. Yep. Have a good one. <laughs>